from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Washington Watch. Coming up, the U.S. Senate worked through the weekend on the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett for the United States Supreme Court. And as a result, Americans were treated to hour upon hour of speeches from Democratic senators opposed to Barrett, like Senator Elizabeth Warren. Why rush through this nomination? Why? Because the Republican Party is scared that they can't win through the democratic process. Are Republicans scared? I don't think so. But we'll check in with Iowa Senator Joni Ernst, a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, with the latest on the confirmation vote of Judge Barrett in just a moment. And we're broadcasting today and tomorrow from Truett McConnell University in Georgia, where tomorrow evening they will host the Pastor, Prophet, Patriot, a religious freedom event with Conservative Baptist Network. You can join the event live. If you're in the area, come join us in northern Georgia or online. Find out more. Go to conservativebaptistnetwork.com slash events. Last week, I mentioned the Geneva Consensus Declaration, which was spearheaded by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and Secretary of Health and Human Services Alex Azar. The declaration advances internationally the sanctity of human life and the foundational role of the family. They were joined by leaders from 31 other countries. And a little bit later today, House uh, the HHS Secretary Alex Azar will join us here on Washington Watch with the why behind the declaration, as well as an overview of the growing list of Trump administration accomplishments that really matter. And as Election Day approaches, we are hearing some of the same arguments we heard four years ago trying to persuade evangelicals not to vote, stay home, because of the character deficiency uh, deficiencies of our choices. So... What should we do? Well, I'm going to talk about it with Dr. Wayne Grudem here on Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter or Parlor, it's at T. Perkins. And by the way, I do advocate that you vote, and we have voting resources for you. And we actually have resources that will help you really answer that question for your friends. Why vote? Why does it matter? PrayVoteStand.org. Lots of resources, party platform comparisons, accomplishments of this administration, what your vote four years ago has produced, all of that at PrayVoteStand.org. And uh, just a reminder, Freedom Sunday, for those uh, that may have caught it over the weekend, that 90-minute broadcast that we did out in California, it uh, it airs on Daystar Network this next Saturday, uh, 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., also on a number of uh, stations on the Tri-State Christian Television Network tonight at 6.30 p.m. in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, Savannah, Georgia, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Paducah, Kentucky, Flint, Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, Greenville, Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, Raleigh, North Carolina, Greensboro, North Carolina, Memphis, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee. Tune in tonight at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time for the Freedom Sunday. It's a powerful event powerful event. So tune in. And uh, if you missed that, go to freedomsunday2020.com for more. All right. As we mentioned, the Senate working through the weekend to keep their promise, the promise uh, that the majority leader made that Amy Coney Barrett would be placed onto the court prior to the election. And we are now just hours away from a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. Joining me now with more on this, Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa, a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Senator, welcome to Washington Watch. 
Oh, thanks so much, Tony. It is really great to be with you and speaking on such an important topic. It is, and I know you, uh, you've you been busy with your colleagues working through the weekend. Of course, that coming on the heels of uh, the marathon uh, confirmation hearing in the, uh, the mm-hmm. committee, which I thought you did an excellent job bringing forth the fact that we have a conservative woman, a woman who abides by the Constitution, a mother, uh, a stellar candidate, and there is really no argument against her credentials. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact... The the attacks, to me, were quite stunning as revealing what the liberals see the court for, and that is to advance their policy ideas and nothing more. Yes, I agree completely, Tony. And we did a wonderful job as Republicans in setting the stage, really advancing the qualifications of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. She is a tremendous jurist. She is a phenomenal legal scholar, and bottom line, Tony, she is a decent human being. And so we were able to push that information out before the hearings even occurred. And, of course, the Democrats had a very, very difficult time then arguing that she did not have the judicial temperament, that she did not have the qualifications to be a Supreme Court justice. Instead, they started projecting upon her what they expect to see with Supreme Court justices, and that is judicial activism. But we know by looking at her her case history in the past that she will be a constitutional. She'll uphold the law, and she will uphold her constitution. Yeah, that that became evidently clear. And, of course, just looking at the, the national polling, her standing has gone up. She did quite well. And I think as Senator Graham on the program last week said that they were trying to set the stage so America, America could see what type of candidate she was and put her under the spotlight. And they did. And I think she she passed with flying colors. Yeah. Uh, Senator Ernst, let me ask you this question. Anything um, in that confirmation process in the uh, hearing that surprised you? You said, wow, I didn't realize that. Or any, anything that really struck you as uh, as really being outstanding? Well, I, for one, I am a mother, and I understand that juggling career, um, juggling your family can be very difficult. But what uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett was able to portray, and I think this was wonderful because I've had the opportunity to meet her, to visit about her family and her faith, and to be able to see that as we were going through the hearings, She doesn't back down from being a mother, a committed mother. She doesn't back down from being a woman of faith. Um, And that, to me, was really important because what we see from the left is that liberals really, really try very hard to marginalize conservative women and women of faith. And yet we saw this brilliant woman in front of us who was able to go through 20 hours of grueling questions from the left and from the right, not use a single note, um, be able to recite case law off the top of her head and why she believes what she believes. Um, But again, not backing down from the fact that she is um, you know, strong and true to her religion and her faith, and that she is a mother and she's raising a beautiful family. And, you know, I wish we could see more of that. And I've said it time and time again that 
this is what a mom can do. And she is proving that to so many young conservative women across our nation. And I'm just so thankful for her, her example. Yeah, excellent point. Uh, in fact, uh, Senator uh, Graham said something very similar. He said, this is the first time in American history that we've nominated a woman who is unashamedly pro-life and embraces her faith without apology. Yeah. And I think that did come forth in the uh, the hearing last week. And that's that's it's refreshing. Uh, you know, it is. That, that in the face of this opposition, this cancel culture that we are now living in, that there are people who believe so deeply that they're not going to be they're not going to be shamed into silence exactly and again you're right that's a great word refreshing because judge amy coney barrett she is refreshing and just having the opportunity to sit with her and not only talk about issues that she has dealt with through the court system in the past but then also getting to know about her and her family and i i just again think that this is a wonderful example for conservative women out there marcia bloodburn and i have had the most wonderful conversations about how great it is that president trump made this nomination a strong woman of faith a mom you know obviously extremely successful and bright in her career but it really does give women something to aspire to and we don't as conservative women we don't have to march in lockstep with what the liberals believe an idea of a woman should be and I think it's important um, for us to recognize that we can be conservative and we can be strong and we can set that example for others. Well, I would like to say the same thing about you and Marsha Blackburn, who I've known for years, that mm-hmm. you, too, in the United States Senate, which this is a, a relatively recent development that we have strong pro-life women in the United States Senate you and Marsha being two of the, the most outspoken uh, on the life issue. And so that provides an example for other women out across America. So it's not just the courts, but it's in the elected office. So I want to thank you for uh, your strong stand for the unborn. Absolutely. I am unapologetic. I uh, truly believe in life. And um, matter of fact, um, I, my daughter is adamantly pro-life as well. She's 21 years old studying pre-law and, you know, just we were having this discussion the other day. One of the papers she is writing currently is on her pro-life stance in one of her law classes. And so I think by having conservative women like myself, like Marsha Blackburn, like Deb Fisher, all of us serving in the United States Senate, serving, um, you know, being pro-life and, again, unapologetic for it, we are inspiring other generations of young leaders that feel free to come out and support life, support their faith. And we see this this shift uh, in the way people are thinking and younger people are thinking. And hopefully we will continue to be role models for not just our young women, but also our young men as well. Yeah. No, 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 no question about it. That example is making a difference. Let me let me shift very quickly before we run out of time. Senator Ernst, uh, I know there was a procedural vote that was uh, either has taken place or is in the process soon. Uh, But what what are we going to see unfold tonight? What's the timeline here on the confirmation vote? 
Yes, we will we'll see um, some more shenanigans coming from Democratic leader Chuck Schumer and all of our Democrats. They will try and dismiss or adjourn our Senate. Uh, Republicans will push back wholeheartedly against that. They are trying any tactic they can to delay the vote. But we do have our vote set for 7.30 this evening, and that will be the final vote for confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to become the next Associate Justice on our great United States Supreme Court. Um, They will try and delay any way they can, but we will disallow that and make sure that we are confirming this exceptionally exceptionally qualified woman uh, to fill that open seat. Well, it, uh, it, it's 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 going to be an exciting evening. Uh, we'll be watching that vote very closely. And again, want to thank you for uh, the role that you played in uh, kind of helping this through the process. Again, a well-qualified judicial nominee that the president made in keeping with his promises will soon be on the court, maybe even later tonight. So, Senator Ernst, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tony. Have a good evening. You too. Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa, and uh, I was talking with another senator earlier, and they'll probably have a motorcade with the engine running uh, to take her down to get her sworn in to the Supreme Court after that vote takes place. So uh, she may be on the court as early as tonight, uh, latest tomorrow morning. All right, when we come back, we're going to be joined by the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services to talk about the Geneva Declaration, which advances the priorities that this administration set out four years ago to do. And you see it throughout their policies, the sanctity of human life and the foundational role of the family. Secretary Alex Azar is here next. Don't go away. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash humansexuality. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. 
Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible, and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So glad to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. The resources for the upcoming election, PrayVoteStand.org. Lots of resources there for you that you can share with family and friends. I mentioned this last week, the uh, the Trump administration, I mean, continuing. I mean, they're not, they're not like throwing themselves on the ball to let the clock run out. I mean, they are working up to the election, continuing to advance the commitments that they made four years ago. The latest example being the Geneva Consensus Declaration. Now, we talked about this about a year ago. Now it is in place. It was signed last Thursday by 32 different nations. Um, Leading the way on this was the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, and the Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo. Joining us now to tell us more about what is in the Geneva Consensus Declaration and why it is important is the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar. Secretary, welcome back to the program. Hey, Tony. It's great to be with you and your listeners. Thanks for having me. Well, I know we actually discussed this uh, when uh, we were up at the United Nations. I, I guess that was about a year ago. I've lost track of time with the coronavirus. Uh, you know, it was like snatched seven years, uh, seven months out of our year. But uh, this was signed uh, by 32 nations on Thursday. Explain exactly what this advances to our listeners. Absolutely. So first, uh, Tony, can I just acknowledge what a great day today is as we look forward to the confirmation of Amy Barrett to be uh, President Trump's third justice on the Supreme Court, Uh, a historic day. Uh, But, you know, last week we had another historic day, and that was Secretary Mike Pompeo and I got together what we call the Geneva Consensus Declaration. And this was, as you said, a group of 33 nations representing more than 1.6 billion people on earth stating there is no international right to abortion, that we need to stand up and fight for countries, the poor countries of the world, who, while protecting their national sovereignty and self-determination on these difficult moral issues, are pressured Uh, get by the U.N. officials and by rich countries. They have their money threatened if they don't go along with a progressive pro-abortion agenda. 
and third, that we will stand up to UN bureaucrats that attempt to misinterpret language like sexual and reproductive freedom in various consensus documents to in incorrectly state that there is an international right to abortion. We're standing up all together for our national sovereignty. We're not trying to convince any other country to change their views, but we are saying respect our views, each of us, locked together in a commitment of nations. Yeah, and, and, and the practical implication of this that I see from a, a kind of the other hat I wear, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom and Travel Around, the, the United Nations can actually be a bully and bully some of these smaller countries into compliance with kind of their left-wing ideology. And this says, look, on this issue of life, and it also goes beyond life, it talks about the fundamental role of the family and that the family should have its sovereignty and not be influenced by these left-wing ideologues. So this is, uh, this is as you say, standing together to protect even the weak and vulnerable nations. That's absolutely right. And, you know, we, the point you made there is important about standing up for for family health and standing up for women's health uh, you know, and children's health. We have so many areas of consensus where we can work together to actually advance a very proactive women's health agenda. But these, these bureaucrats and these other left-wing countries try to drive an agenda that will not get to consensus. And we say we stand against that. You know, we heard from a Nigerian pro-life activist, and this activist said, never did I think that America would use its great power to speak for the protection of the unborn in the most unambiguous and unapologetic terms. This says for smaller countries, when the rich, rich European powers say to you that your development funding will be cut off if you don't vote with us on a pro-abortion agenda, it says America and the rest of the, these countries signing this Geneva Consensus Declaration stand with you. When the U.N. threatens you because you don't agree with their agenda, <clears throat> these nations stand with you. Regardless of whether leaders change, now countries are committed to each other to hold the U.N. and others accountable uh, for the fact that there's no international right to abortion, that other countries shouldn't be threatened and bullied into changing their views on this issue. And words have meaning, and none of us have ever agreed to language that, that allows U.N. bureaucrats to impose an international right to abortion. You know, the, the statement from the Nigerian pro-life activist, never did I think that the United States would use its influence to advance life, paraphrasing that. that. That is so true because we've never had a pro-life secretary of state. I mean, this is the first time we've had an administration that is unified in advancing sanctity of human life and so many other things, such as religious freedom as well, which your department has been doing as well, not only as a secretary of state, but the Department of Health and Human Services as well. So it, there's a reason people are surprised. They never expected America to be this strong on these issues. Well, and it, it takes a president like Donald Trump, who has the courage of his convictions to lay out this unapologetic pro-life agenda and to support people like Secretary Mike Pompeo and myself and our teams uh, to advance an agenda that protects life from the moment of conception through natural death. Uh, that yeah. can't be done without, without the support of somebody like Donald Trump at the top making it clear that he is unapologetically pro-life and going to support these types of policy initiatives.
uh, uh, Secretary, we're up against a break. I- any chance you can stick around for a few more minutes? Because uh, you've gone through a list of accomplishments of the Trump administration that uh, I think is remarkable that our, our listeners, I think, really need to hear. Sure, Tony. Happy to stay with you. Okay, great. Because I also want to get an update on the, the vaccine that you have been overseeing in the Department of Health and Human Services for the coronavirus. So, uh, Secretary of Health... Alex Azar is going to stick with us, folks. Uh, you stick with us as well, because I, I think you want to hear what he has to say. When you just kind of, you know, he says that last week was a historic week. This week was a historic week. There's a lot of historic weeks that we've seen in the last four years. And this has been a historic administration when it comes to life, religious liberty, so many things that you and I care so much about that, quite frankly, I never thought I would see the United States pushing so hard for. That's the the results of elections. All right, folks, stick with us. We're coming right back on the other side of the break. Don't go away. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, i definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? In this important season for our nation, it is imperative for Christians to pray. While we have a responsibility to vote for biblical values and stand for truth, our priority should always be to seek the Lord first. Each week until the election, FRC and FRC Action will host a special Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to equip you to pray, vote, and stand for biblical truth. We'll have experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders join us for these half-hour programs that will help you see through the fog that's been created by the biased lenses of the mainstream media. While you're there, be sure to take the 2020 Pray, Vote, Stand Challenge and make a commitment to pray for our nation, vote biblical values, and stand for truth during this 2020 election season. To watch the broadcasts and to take the 2020 Pray, Vote, Stand Challenge, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Resources for you as we approach this election, PrayVoteStand.org. Now, these are very helpful for you to share with family and friends especially those who may be somewhat indifferent about voting. It, it, uh, there's a comparison between the two-party platforms. There's an accomplishments list of the Trump administration. And this is, this is really good. It, it's good stuff because 
it is, it's not commentary. It is now up to about 12 pages of date, time, and what was accomplished. And it's extensive. And one of the areas that we've seen some of the greatest accomplishments, quite frankly, has been in the Department of Health and Human Services, advancing the sanctity of human life, conscience rights, uh, religious freedom protections. Uh, they've really been at the tip of the spear and that's been under the leadership of the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, and he is on the line with us. Secretary, thanks for sticking around for this next segment. My pleasure, Tony. Thank you. All right. I, I, I want to get into that list of accomplishments, but first, I, I know our listeners would really like to have an update on where things stand with the, the vaccine. It was discussed last week, last Thursday night in the presidential debate. Where, where do things stand? So thanks to President Trump's leadership of Operation Warp Speed, uh, it's really historic advances. Uh, we now have uh, six vaccines that we have contracted with or invested in. Four of those are in late-stage clinical trials. That's the final stage of testing. Uh, two of them, the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, are fully enrolled or almost fully enrolled, and we're just waiting for data and results from them. The other two have just restarted their phase three trials after uh, confirming no safety concerns by the FDA there. Uh, and so just this has never happened before. We literally are making all six of these vaccines. We're producing at commercial scale right now and stockpiling vaccine so that if and when the FDA authorizes use of any of them, we'll have vaccine ready to go to, to start vaccinating people. So you're, you're actually kind of moving advancing this, getting stockpiling these vaccines, but you're making an investment. And if something happens, it's not approved, then, you know, that those vaccines are gone. But you're based upon what you see, you're confident, but you're you're being proactive in moving forward. Let me ask you this question, because this is one of the issues that's been raised that, well, this thing has moved so fast, because it really has, compared to what other vaccines take sometimes seven years to go uh, through the whole process. They've moved this, as you said, in warp speed, appropriate name. Um, but does slow mean better, or is that just kind of the bureaucratic process, and this time we're moving through the barriers, the red tape, uh, because of the urgency of the moment, but this, you can still count on these vaccines and the quality uh, of them. So, Tony, I'm really glad you asked that question because there's so many misconceptions. I think in part because, thanks to the president's leadership here, we are moving so quickly it has caused people to ask those questions. But let me explain for your listeners. What we're doing differently here is employing the full financial power of the U.S. government to make things move faster. So if you were just a drug company, you, you're, you're running a business. You are trying to minimize financial risks. So you would do the first phase of clinical trials. Then you would study those, and you would wait, and then you would plan phase two if that first phase worked. And then you'd wait, and then maybe you'd plan phase three. So you're, you're, it's called de-risking at each step of the way. That's delay. We instead are funding upfront for all of these vaccines, all of those development costs, all of those exercises. So even if a vaccine were to, were to basically fail at one phase and we lose our money, it's our money as taxpayers, we funded that, that no drug company would have done. We can literally move from one phase to the next in 24 hours in many instances, where in the past it would have taken many months. And then 
we're separately manufacturing at commercial scale these vaccines, which no drug company ever would have done while you're still waiting for FDA approval. So those are the things we're doing that are different, that are making this so fast. We are not cutting quarters. In fact, these are some of the biggest clinical trials for vaccines ever in history, over 30,000 people per vaccine. Um, all the safety checks are there. In fact, you can see from the, fa from the, the fact that two of these uh, vaccine trials were halted because of uh, any type of safety concern, and FDA analyzed them. Uh, we're playing this by the book, not cutting any corners, but we're putting the full might of the U.S. government behind it. That's what's making it faster. Good, good to know. I think that puts a lot of that to, uh, to rest. Uh, Secretary, before we run out of time in this segment, Run down a few weeks ago, you went through a litany of accomplishments of your agency under this administration when it pertains to life, religious liberty, and so on. Share some of that with our listeners. Well, you know, we reformed Title X regulations for the first time since President Reagan to to stop Title X monies for, for family planning services from being used to support the abortion enterprise in the United States. Uh, and as a result, Planned Parenthood left uh, uh, most of the Title X program because they didn't want to comply with the rules that would prevent taxpayers from subsidizing abortions. Uh, we created exemptions to the contraception mandate that was in the Affordable Care Act and that was upheld by the Supreme Court. We're enforcing the rights of conscience to not for healthcare workers to not participate in providing abortions. Um, and we're, we're ensuring that religious providers of foster care services can do so without compromising their religious freedom. Well, it's safe to say you've been busy. And uh, for one, I can say for one, and I think I can speak actually for millions, we are grateful for the work that you have done at the Department of Health and Human Services in advancing these core values that make such a big difference in our culture. So, Secretary, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. All right, Secretary Alex Azar with the Department of Health and Human Services. All right, coming up next, we're going to take a look at the election. You know, with the people raising issues about the flawed character of the candidates, maybe we should just sit this one out. What do you think? I'm going to tell you what I think next. Don't go away. Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. 
the federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash pro-life maps. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash humansexuality. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins, your host. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, we were talking about this. There are those raising issues about the quality of the candidates that we have, the character of the candidates, suggesting that we shouldn't vote in this election. You know, William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania, said this. He said, quote, government like clocks go from the motion men give them. And as governments are made and moved by men, so by them they are ruined also. Therefore, governments depend upon men rather than men upon governments. You know, Penn's insight has been proven correct as we look at the condition of government in America at at every level. Our national debt is rapidly approaching $30 trillion as governments have taken over more and more of the responsibilities that belong to the individual's. Uh, to churches and to other institutions. Consider this, over 60 million babies have been killed by government-sanctioned abortion. The court has redefined marriage over the people's express actions, and now sexual confusion has become near-pandemic among America's youth as school curriculum promotes this radical view of sexuality that defies scientific truth and biblical morality. Now, I could go on and on, but I, I think you get the point. We get out of government what we put into it. Now, as we approach the opportunity we have every four years to select our leaders, we are hearing once again, as I mentioned, from some evangelical leaders. Many of those in the camp of the never-Trumpers are again raising the issue of character and suggesting it is better to sit this election out than to vote for Donald Trump. Let me first say that I agree with them that character matters. Back to William Penn's comments. Our government's character will reflect the characters we put in it. If we want righteous government, we need men and women who understand righteousness because they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We need those type of people being elected to office and being placed in government positions. 
But I, I will say this. I do wonder how many of those who are talking about the character of political candidates have actually worked to see men and women of Christian faith elected to office. Have they given money to their campaigns? Have they lent their influence to help them? Have they offered their platforms to give exposure to these Christian men and women who have been called to public service? See, my experience as a candidate and as an elected official is that very few of them have been willing to step into the arena where the clash of worldviews actually occurs. It's much safer to be a commentator on the sidelines. The result of Christian leaders playing it safe as spectators rather than participants in our republic often leaves us as voters with difficult choices. Choices between candidates whose characters are less than ideal and far fall below, far below the biblical criteria of what we should be looking for in our leaders. So what are we as Christian voters supposed to do at this point? Say we're going to let someone else decide because we don't like the choice that's before us? Well, here's my suggestion. We should do what most evangelicals did four years ago. They considered the real choice before them, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Knowing that both had issues of character, issues from their past, they considered their priorities, their policies, and their personnel that they publicly embraced. Now, based on what has happened in the last almost four years, let me say this. Let me say this on the record. I do not regret my decision to support Donald Trump one bit. Do I agree with everything he has said and done? No. But I also realize that a lot of the conflict and division that we see is the result of him and his administration standing up to those leading who have been leading this nation down the path that has produced the consequences I mentioned earlier. He is a disruptor, and that brings conflict. Do I agree with the language and vulgarity that occasionally comes from the president? No. But because of the relationship that evangelicals have established with this president, I've been able to communicate those concerns on more than one occasion. But I have a whole lot more to agree with this president than I would disagree with. Let me start with a big one. In keeping with William Penn's insight, personnel is policy. In other words, it's not just the person you elect, but who they surround themselves with and bring into their administration that has a tremendous impact on the policies that come from government. One of Trump's cabinet secretaries, who's a personal friend, quipped to me one day, President Trump may not be a Sunday school teacher, but he sure knows how to hire them. And it is those Sunday school teachers that have carried out the promises made by President Trump to advance the sanctity of human life, to restore religious freedom, and to rein in the runaway activist courts, just to name a few. Like Ronald Reagan, some of the previous Republican presidents were really good men. But apparently they didn't know how to hire those Sunday school teachers. And as a result, very few of their promised moral reforms actually happened. From the sanctity of human life to the restoration of religious freedom to the placement of men and women of principle and constitutional convention on the courts, there has not been a better president in my lifetime than Donald Trump. I do not believe it is morally, biblically acceptable to sit on the sidelines. Joining me now to explore further what men and women of faith should be doing as we approach this election is Dr. Wayne Grudem, systematic theology author. He is a research professor of theology and biblical studies at Phoenix Seminary in Arizona. Dr. Grudem, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tony. 
So let me just start with the heart of the issue that you heard me address. Is it acceptable for men and women of faith just to sit on the sidelines because they have a difficult choice to make? I don't think so. I I would say to my friends who are going to write in the name of their husband or wife or their pastor or something, or a third-party candidate, I would say, you are really helping Joe Biden to win the election. And the reason is, um, one way of thinking about it, a moral choice, is to say, if everybody like you did the same thing, if every Christian did the same thing, what would be the result? Well, if every evangelical decided to write in a third-party candidate, Joe Biden would win every single state in a landslide. And so um, even if a significant portion of evangelicals, the, the exit polls for white evangelicals, I don't have statistics for uh, black evangelicals, Hispanic evangelicals, but the statistics for white evangelicals show 80% voted for Trump the first time, 16% for Hillary Clinton, and 4% didn't vote for either or voted for a third-party candidate. If that 4% had been 5% or 6% who didn't vote for either party candidate, again, Joe Biden would have won. And so I think that this should be a persuasive argument to people. If you if you encourage others not to vote for any of the above, you may think you're doing something morally pure, but you're doing something <clears throat> that is morally questionable because you're helping the really morally cor- corrupt and evil policies of the Democrats to take control of the nation. And that's coming as a threat to us. I, uh, I look at Proverbs twenty five twenty six, Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. And uh, that, that says to me, Tony, when I see evil coming to attack our country with pro-abortion candidate, pro-transgender candidate, a candidate who will weaken the military, raise taxes, hurt the economy. I, I see a candidate who's going to um, do great harm to the nation, and I can't stand by and do nothing who give way before the wicked. I think I have to do what I can to stop that evil from taking over the nation. And I know you wrestled with this because you and I had conversations in the last election. Um And I will say this, Donald Trump is kind of a paradox from a standpoint of you look at his background, you look at uh, everything about him. He is not, and I was not a supporter of his early. It was only when we came down to a choice between him and Hillary. And my focus was on the policies, what you just described. And he is a paradox from the standpoint of I never would have envisioned the type of policies that have come from his administration would have such a champion as Donald Trump and his administration. But I I, want to underscore something that I mentioned just a moment ago is that not only is it Donald Trump, he has made these things his priority. There's no question about it. But it's the people he surrounded himself with who are men and women of great character who are upholding him and his administration in accomplishing these things. That has to be considered. I just heard you say that a few minutes ago, Tony, and I appreciated that point. I hadn't realized that. Uh, I knew there were a number of evangelical Christians, self-professing evangelicals in Trump's cabinet, but I, I didn't think about the fact that there are people who are exemplary in their moral conduct and provide uh, leadership for those various departments of the 
huge uh, operation we call our government. And we have to be thankful for that. And the, the amazing sound judgment, I think, that President Trump has exercised in regard to many policy decisions, moving the embassy to Jerusalem, uh, withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord in spite of immense pressure from the other side, um, excluding transgender persons from our military services. Um, Let me ask you a question, Dr. Grudem, a biblical question here from biblical history. We look back to the kings of Israel, uh, Judah, Manasseh comes to mind um, from Judah, but, but Israel carried away captive. When you see, I think, in First Kings, uh, the chapter slips me. But the, the all sins, all things are not equal. One of the things that we see that really was like, if you will, the straw that broke the camel's back was not just the idolatry and the rejection of God, but it was the sacrifice of children. Right. I, I think when we look at policies such as abortion, where what we have done in this country with over 60 million unborn children sacrificed on the altar of personal convenience, that matters a whole lot. And that is a distinguishing issue between these two candidates. Tony, we have a new little granddaughter who's been at our house most Sunday afternoons in the last few months. And she's so precious, you just want to hug her and hold her and protect her. And to think that there's a political party that whose driving force seems to be promoting the freedom of people to take the life of such young, beautiful children. There's got to be deep evil behind that, uh, behind that commitment. And I just don't see that we can say that Trump's uh, name-calling and in, insulting of people at times comes anywhere near the evil of killing unborn children. And that isn't just a policy held by a few in the Democratic Party. It's, it's the defining characteristic that decides whether you have leadership in the party or not. Exactly. You, if you have a pro-life view, in fact, the, one of the, the last remaining pro-life members of Congress uh, Congressman Lipinski and from uh, Illinois was pushed out of his own party. They they primaried him because of his pro-life uh, right. view. And uh, actually, it was Second Kings I was thinking of. But the the this issue, I, I think it's it's not the only issue. But as you pointed out, I, I don't like profanity. I don't like the coarsening of our culture that that takes place. You know, by the the, the the conversation we're having, but I also have to say this about that is that the reason there's such a dust up around the president is that he is, he is not willing to just go with the flow in a slower manner, which has been the policy of many Republican presidents yeah. in the past. He is saying, no, we're not doing this. We're going the right. opposite direction. So a part of the reason there's this dust up is he's fighting for the values that you and I care about. What is his motivation? Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know exactly. I think because I he thinks know. it's right. I, I, it is It is in part because he thinks it's right, but it's also in part because he knows it's important to us, and we have right. been a friend of his, and he yeah. has said that to us. 
And, and I think he's growing in his personal understanding of the importance of these issues. Certainly, I know that to be the case on the life issue, without question, because I've had private conversations with him. And I know that to be the case. He's thought about it in a way that he never thought about it when he was a businessman in New York. But I, I just think, Dr. Grudem, when we as Christians look at these things, there is a continuum of importance. And I think protecting human life, not excusing the other behaviors, but some things are more important. And and I don't want a candidate who's going to give me lip service in public and then push policies that's going to kill babies behind closed doors and do other things. And I think that's the choice we have. Well, I agree with you, Tony. I, I want to turn to President Trump's character again, that topic. Um, what I read sometimes among Never Trump even evangelicals, is an entirely negative assessment of his character. And I think it's just an extremely hostile evaluation. Evaluating a person's character is complex. But where are the positive things about President Trump's character? When do you hear those? Yeah. I mean, I can think of a bunch of things. He's, He's deeply patriotic. He's a remarkable problem solver. He's got remarkable children. I've He's actually very stories. personally very generous too. I've and heard very compassionate. Very, uh, numerous stories of his kindness and thoughtfulness, and courage is a moral virtue that isn't commonly found today. But he's got great courage of his convictions, faithfulness to his campaign promises, um, incredible energy in the performance of the job, and and I would say dignity and even eloquence in many formal speeches and ceremonies. And when you see him in public with his wife, just tremendous respect and appreciation for his wife and his family. And uh, facing, on the spur of the moment, a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour of hostile reporters answering question after question with incredible knowledge of a wide range of issues. Um, you're you're absolutely right. Those positive characteristics do not get much attention. Dr. Gruden, we're out of time. I want to thank you for joining us. And, uh, folks, thank you for joining us as well. Check out PrayVoteStand.org. Until next time, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 